name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Wow. Perfect. Well, it's Maundy Thursday, and uh, we are gathering to spend some time with Jesus and his disciples on the very last night before Jesus' crucifixion. Maundy Thursday. Maundy is a kind of a strange word, isn't it? I was well out of seminary before I learned what you may already know. And that is that the word Maundy is an old English derivation of the Latin word mandatum. Mandatum, uh, which means command or commandment. And of course, this is because uh, Jesus said to the disciples on the last night... Uh, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. One of my more corny priest friends says, so it's kind of commandy Thursday. Commandy Thursday. I didn't think it was very funny either. So, um, and the new commandment is an incredibly important part of this special night. But for my money, it is the last part. What comes before it is also very important. The Maundy, uh, Maundy Thursday tells the whole gospel story. As Jesus and his disciples gathered around the table to remember and to commemorate the Passover, and then Jesus stands up and gives the Passover meal a whole new meaning, and then finally he commissions his disciples with the new commandment, or... If you like, Maundy Thursday gives us substitution, institution, and constitution. So substitution, institution, constitution. So first, substitution. Now Jesus and his disciples uh, gathered in the upper room to do what nearly every faithful Jew was doing that night. And actually, many faithful Jews, I'm sure, did last night. Uh, they were there to celebrate the Passover. And when we celebrate uh, Good Friday and Easter and even Maundy Thursday, we're not saying that Jesus for, for Good Friday and Easter was crucified and raised once again. You know, like, like once again, which we kind of talk about this like that sometimes. But what we're doing, of course, is we're looking back 2,000 years at the once and for all glorious and saving events of Jesus' death and resurrection. And just like that, in the same way, the Passover meal, uh, the Jewish people were looking back nearly 2,000 years at a glorious and saving intervention of God. The Passover was one of the seminal events in the history of the Jewish people. And it was recounted, as Marcia read it in our passage from Exodus chapter 12. The Hebrew people are enslaved in Egypt by Pharaoh. And this is going to be the tenth and final plague that God sends to assert himself over the will and the power of Pharaoh. And God will claim and free his own people. Now, every other, all the nine plagues that have come before this have only affected the Egyptians, not the Hebrews. But this plague, will be unique. 
the Hebrews will not be exempt from this plague. Because this most terrible plague, the death of the firstborn, is going to be a judgment against all sin. Not just Pharaoh's sin. And that may seem harsh to us. Because we want the punishment to fit the crime. And did these Hebrews do the same as Pharaoh? And I want to say that God's judgment is not the emotional response, for instance, of an angry God with a wooden spoon who just didn't get his way. Judgment is a holy God expunging unholiness. And so regardless of how serious it looks to us at the time, all sin, all sin at its root is our declaration to God, not thy will, but mine be done. And so the judgment of God is not anger in the sense that we normally think of as anger. Judgment is God's insistence on holiness. And none of us escapes that scrutiny. Not Pharaoh or the Egyptians, not the Hebrews, and not us. And yet this is where the gospel story of Maundy Thursday begins. Because the Passover is the story of God providing for his people a means of escape from his own judgment. And so they were to take an unblemished lamb into their home. And after a few days, they were to kill it and consume it. And the blood of the lamb was to be put on the doorposts of their homes. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will destroy you. And listen, God didn't need a lamb to die. I mean, he knew even then that he was going to send his son to die for the sins of the whole world. But what the ones that needed it were the people. The people needed it. They needed to have a tangible, visceral reminder of God saving them from his own judgment. The lamb died in their place. A substitution. And the blood on the doorpost was an outward and visible sign of that inward and spiritual reality. And though God wrought terrible judgment against the Egyptians on that fearsome night, God did mercifully pass over the Jews. And then God marched his people out of Egypt. And so Jesus and his disciples being faithful Jews, were gathered around the table in an upper room to remember those gracious and saving acts of God, that God had provided a means of substitution to bear his own judgment so that the people would not have to. And then that God delivered them from bondage and slavery. It was a ritual liturgy. This dinner was a ritual liturgy that the disciples would have practiced from the time that they were children. They knew it well. In fact, it had helped shape their understanding of who God was and who they were in him. But then Jesus stood up 
at this ritual meal. And he explained his own mission in the context of this Passover story. In the context of God delivering his people from his own judgment. So in the context of substitution, Jesus gives us institution. He institutes the Lord's Supper. Because the very next day, he was going to be the unblemished lamb. He would be the means of deliverance that God provides for all people from God's judgment. And so in front of his disciples, including Judas, who he knew was just about to betray him, he takes the traditional unleavened bread of the Passover meal and he tears it apart. And he holds up the broken pieces and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he took a cup, red wine, dark red wine, and he held it up to them and he said, drink this, all of you, for this is my blood that is poured out for you. And this is a new covenant of God's grace. No longer is the covenant just for the Hebrews, it's for all people. No longer are you to offer a sacrifice to God, but God is offering a sacrifice for you. In just a minute, Father George is going to pray these, basically these same words over the bread and the wine. This is my body, which is broken for you. Drink this, all of you, in remembrance of me. And the church calls these the words of institution. Such that when we come to the altar rail, tonight and always, we will eat this bread and drink this wine. We are understanding that we are eating and drinking the very sacrifice of God. We are taking Jesus' death into ourselves, understanding that his death is the way to life. He is in us, now literally, and we in him. And so if you've come here tonight and you just need to remember that God loves you, then you will take this bread and wine, this body and blood, and remember his sacrifice given willingly and freely and lovingly to draw you to himself. Or if you've come here tonight and you need forgiveness, you need to forgive someone because, because you're carrying around a load of of hurt and resentment, or you need to be forgiven because you're carrying around a load of, of shame and guilt. And you'll feel that bread in your mouth and you'll taste the wine and you'll know that you're taking into yourself the forgiveness that was already bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus, God's unblemished lamb. Or if you've come in here tonight and, and you've been suffering in some way, feel isolated, you're wondering where is God in all of what's going on around you, you'll take the bread and the wine broken and poured out and know that you have a God who understands suffering. You have a God that cried out from his cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet you have also a God who said, I will never leave you or forsake. See, the Eucharist 
is our proclamation of daring belief. Christ in us and we in him. In the context of Passover's substitution, Jesus gives us institution. The institution of the sacrament of his body and blood. But did you notice, as Deacon Beth read, did you notice when that when Jesus gets up and he washes his disciples' feet, that it is during this sacramental supper. It's not after the supper. They're putting all the dishes away. That's kind of the way I've always thought about it. It says it is right in the middle. It's during the supper. Right in the middle of the meal. In other words, just as Jesus institutes the sacrament of his sacrifice in the context of the Passover... It's in the context of him giving us the sacrament of his sacrifice that he demonstrates our proper response. Which is to say, in the context of his pouring himself out for us, he shows us the constitution of the Christian life. And what constitutes the Christian life? The new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, to simply love one another that actually would not have been a new commandment. I mean, think about love your neighbor as yourself. By this time, that was already ancient wisdom. I mean, it was the law of Moses, Leviticus 19.18. In fact, every other religion or philosophy, in one way or another, exhorts its followers to love others. But the newness of Jesus' new commandment is not just love itself, but that we are to love one another as he loved us. Which is to say with sacrificial outpouring. With a love that is willing to put oneself out in order to serve. With a love that lowers oneself in order to lift others up. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Your moral life, it's important. Your self-control is important. Knowing the Bible, it is important. Going to church, contributing to the life of your church is important. But the constitution of the Christian life is to love others like this. Right? To love others in the sacrificial model. Jesus. When we were in seminary, Amy was pregnant with our first child. And um, it was a wonderful time in many ways. But, uh, you know, I, and I was in seminary, and so you might think of a seminary, and it's just, you know, prob- you probably do. I mean, really pious and holy and... Um, what a seminarian really is, is very tired and stressed out because of grades and stressed out because of money and, um, and stressed out because of the work that we have to do. And, um, and my in-laws came to town and they were caring for, uh, caring for us and, and, what, and they offered to go and, and um, help us shop for strollers. And Again, I was, I was stressed, and somehow, for some reason, that um, some, in retrospect, I probably wasn't all that justified, 
uh, all of that stress decided to uncork on Amy in aisle four of, of uh, Babies Are Us. Now, Amy and I are married, as you know, and, um, and, and so we're going to work this out. Like, we're, gonna, we're going to, I'm going to apologize. She's going to forgive me. We're, we're, we've committed to that. But you know who didn't have to forgive me? Her mom, who was right there. And I was real ugly. It was really not mine. It was, it was, I look back on that and I cringe at that. And I don't remember all the details. What I do remember is that my mother-in-law loved me well. That she put it aside. Whether she, I don't know, she made a really nice dinner or whatever. She gave me extra presents at Christmas. I don't remember all. But I just remember that Amy's mother was a picture of sacrificial love to me, a, a picture of loving me when I did not deserve it, and probably loving me at some personal cost to herself. She loved me that, in a way that has always been a picture of the constitution of Christian love, selfless, outpouring love that does not weigh whether it is deserved or not. So Maundy Thursday tells the whole gospel story. Substitution, institution, constitution. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May we love one another as he has loved us.